Chapter 15. The Sea Wife Now you might not expect to find the sea wife in the heart of Kent, but that is where I found her, in a mean street in the poor quarter of Maidstone. In her window she had no sign of lodgings to let, and yet persuasion was necessary before she could bring herself to let me sleep in her front room. In the evening I descended to the semi-subterranean kitchen, and I talked with her and her old man, Thomas Muggeridge by name. And as I talked to them, all the subtleties and complexities of this tremendous machine of civilization just vanished away. It seemed that I went down through the skin and the flesh of the naked soul of it, and in Thomas Muggeridge and his old woman, I gripped the whole of the essence of the remarkable English breed. I found there the spirit of the wanderlust which had lured Albion's sons across the zones, and I found there the colossal unreckoning which was tricked the English into foolish squabbling and preposterous fighting, and the doggedness and the stubbornness which have brought them blindly through to empire and greatness. And likewise I found that vast, incomprehensible patience, which had enabled the home population to endure under the burden of it all, and to toil without complaint through the weary years, and docilely to yield the best of its sons to fight and colonise the ends of the earth, it was all here. Thomas Muggeridge was seventy-one years old, and a little man. It was because he was little that he had not gone off to be a soldier. He had remained at home and worked. His first recollections were connected with work. He knew nothing else but work. He had worked all his days, and at seventy-one he still worked. Each morning saw him up with a lark, and a field, a day labour, for as such as he had been born to. Mrs. Muggeridge was seventy-three. From seven years of age she worked in the fields, doing a boy's work at first, and later a man's. Still she worked, keeping the house shining, washing, boiling and baking, and, with my advent, cooking for me, and shaming me by making my bed. At the end of threescore years and more of work, they possessed nothing. They had nothing to look forward to, save more work. And they were contented. They expected nothing else, and they desired nothing else. They lived simply, and their wants were few. A pint of beer at the end of the day, sipped in the semi-subterranean kitchen, a weekly paper to pour over for seven nights, hand-running, and conversation as meditative and vacant as the chewing of a heifer's cud. From a wood engraving on the wall, a slender angelic girl looked down upon them, and underneath was the legend, Our Future Queen, and from a highly coloured lithograph alongside looked down a stout and elderly lady with underneath, Our Queen, Diamond Jubilee. What you earn is sweetest, quoth Mrs. Muggeridge, when I suggested it was about time they took a rest. No, and we don't want help, said Thomas Muggeridge, in reply to my question as to whether the children lent them a hand. No, we'll, uh, we'll work till we dry up and blow away, yeah, mother and me, he added, 
and Mrs. Muggeridge nodded her head in vigorous endorsement. Fifteen children she'd born, and all were away and gone, or dead. The baby, however, lived at Maidstone, and she was twenty-seven. When the children married, they had their hands full with their own families and troubles, just like their fathers and mothers before them. Where were the children? Ah, where were they not? Lizzie was in Australia. Mary was in Buenos Aires. Paul was in New York. Joel had died in India. And so they called them the living and the dead, the soldier and the sailor, and the colonist's wife, for the traveller's sake who sat in their kitchen. They passed me a photograph. A trim young fellow in soldier's garb looked out at me. And uh, which son is this? I asked. They laughed a hearty chorus. Son? <laughs> Nay, grandson, just back from Indian service and a soldier trumpeter to the king. His brother was in the same regiment with him. And so it ran. Sons and daughters and grandsons and daughters, world wanderers and empire builders, all of them, while the old folk stayed at home and worked at building empire too. There dwells a wife by the northern gate, and a wealthy wife is she. She breeds a breed of roving men, and casts them o'er the sea. And some are drowned in deep water, and some in sight of shore. And the word goes back to the weary wife, and ever she sends more. But the sea wife's childbearing is about done. The stock is running out, and the planet is filling up. The wives of her sons may carry on the breed, but her work is past. And erstwhile men of England are now the men of Australia, and of Africa, and of America. England has sent forth the best she breeds for so long, and has destroyed those that remain so fiercely, that little remains for her to do but to sit through, down through the long nights, and to gaze at royalty on the wall. The true British merchant seaman has passed away. The merchant service is no longer a recruiting ground for such sea dogs as fought with Nelson at Trafalgar and the Nile. Foreigners, largely a man the merchant ships, so Englishmen still continue to officer them and to prefer foreigners forward. In South Africa, the colonial teaches the islander how to shoot, and the officers muddle and blunder while at home the street people play hysterically at Mafeking, and the war office lowers the stature for enlistment. It could not be otherwise. A more complacent Britisher couldn't hope to draw off the lifeblood and underfed and keep it up forever. The average Mrs. Thomas Muggeridge had been driven into the city, and she's not breeding very much of anything save an anemic and a sickly progeny which cannot find enough to eat. The strength of the English-speaking race today is not in the tight little island, but in the new world overseas, where there are sons and daughters of Mrs. Thomas Muggeridge. The sea-wife by the northern gate has just about done her work in the world, although she doesn't realise it. She must sit down and rest, her tired loins for a pace, and if the casual ward and the workhouse do not await her, it's simply because the sons and daughters she's reared up against that day of her feebleness and decay 
I'll do it for her.